governors of life, the governors of life. Things that God has given us in Scripture that sometimes seem a little hidden, but that are there specifically for those who have ears to hear. For those who are interested in what God really has called us to, in order to make life normal for the person who lives in a crazy world. So oftentimes it's very difficult because we start grabbing at straws just to find security in a very unstable society. But I want to give you those lifelines that God has thrown out for us so that we can find that stability just like a, just like a ship would find in the anchors. When you turn on the TV, you are offered an, uh, um, a massive amount of destructive emotions. It's a long list of destructive emotions that you can buy into every time you turn that TV on. And that list of destructive emotions are ever-increasing. So how do we, as a people of God, rise above the fray? How do we, as the kingdom of God, live differently, not just externally, but internally, live differently than those who are constantly, you know, tossed to and fro by what's going on in society? How can we not just live above the fray, but clear the smoke and also live above the noise? I mean, there's so much going on. Uh, news is ever accelerating. There's more news coming out, breaking news now. Whenever you turn on the TV, it's always breaking news. Everything is breaking news. And uh, if you don't watch the news in the morning uh, and you only tune in at night, you've missed a whole cycle. And so there's so much going on. The question is, how do we live above that noise? Well, it's by finding scriptural anchors. Scriptural anchors and then holding fast to those anchors. Today, I want to look at three of those anchors. By asking these questions, number one is what makes life profitable? You can live in a society that seems to be down spiraling while at the same time you can be soaring. While everything seems to be going downwards, you can be, you can be rising upward. So the question is what makes life profitable? Then we're going to look at what makes life meaningful. And then thirdly, we're going to look at what makes life necessary. So first, what makes life profitable? Well, the hidden anchor, you can't see that anchor, but it keeps that ship steady, right? That hidden anchor that God gives us that makes life profitable, where you can gain in this life, even while everybody seems to be losing in this life, is contentment. Contentment. Many are deeply dissatisfied about the life that they have. It is evident. People will go to extremes just to attain a different life than the one they have. Do you realize that we currently live in the most prosperous era ever experienced through the history of humanity? This is the most prosperous era we know of that man has ever experienced. This is the freest people have ever been. I mean, you know, if you think about the Roman Empire, if you, just, if you know a little bit about history, you'll know that this is the freest we've ever been. Yet people will go to the extreme just to have a different kind of life. They will work themselves into the ground just so that they can earn a bit more than what they're currently earning already. They will neglect their marriage and their children so that they can reach a specific career goal. One after the next, after the next. And it's insatiable. It's never satisfied. It's obvious that people are deeply dissatisfied with their life. They will neglect their marriage. They will neglect their children for those goals. They will divorce their life partner so that they can have another attempt at a possibly more functional life or something that promises something better than what they've had. They will go deep into debt. I mean, imagine that. We've never seen people with this much debt. 
We've never had this much debt collectively. And they'll go deeper and deeper into debt so that they can experience a more convenient lifestyle, one that they can't even afford. So people are obviously very dissatisfied with the life that they have. This is evident. But since God has brought us this idea of contentment, the question has to be asked, what does contentment look like? So we want to delve into the idea of contentment. Because having been born and raised in Africa, I have seen, and I'm sure you've seen this too, I've seen some people who have a, who have a lot, and they just seem dissatisfied. They have a tremendous amount, but they cannot enjoy what they have. But then, I've seen people who have very little, yet they seem to be enjoying all of what they've got. So it almost seems like these two truths colliding, two people living in the exact same society, and I've seen it so, my best friend I had in Africa was, his name was Tinas. And um, the living conditions were just absolutely horrible. But the satisfaction was sky high. <laughs> and then I've seen people with a tremendous amount. And they just hate their life. It's obvious that having stuff is not what causes you to be content. So we have to look at what contentment is made out of. We have to first understand that contentment comes from an inward attitude to life. What is your internal attitude in life? Not what your external achievements or assets. No, it's your internal disposition. Many philosophers, authors, religious leaders have all identified the importance of this concept of contentment. In the third part of Henry VI, for those of you that studied Shakespeare, Shakespeare draws a picture of the king wandering in, in the country places amongst those who did not know him. He meets two strangers and then he tells them that he's the king. And one of them ask asks him, and I quote, But if thou be a king, where is thy crown? Then here comes the king's great answer. He says, My crown is in my heart, not on my head. Not decked with diamonds and Indian stones, nor to be seen. My crown is called content. A crown it is that seldom kings enjoy. End quote. So true. I mean, throughout history, you see all these kings. For instance, Nero. Did you know that Nero, uh, what was he, about 60 after Christ? In that area there, he was in the first century. Nero uh, was actually named the beast because he was so ruthless. Nero became, uh, rose to power, I believe, at the age of 18 or 19. But he was so crazy that history tells us that Nero, who's the guy that burnt down portion of Rome and then blamed it on the Christians so that they wouldn't blame him. And then what he did was he started, he started uh, uh, inciting Christian persecution and because of it, he blamed them for burning down the city or portion of a city and then he hung them down the streets on poles and lit them on fire after tarring them so that they could have lamps. He was the one who threw them in the Colosseum so that, uh, you know, with, with hungry animals. And this was their sport. But Nero himself was so uh, crazy that he would, and, and excuse this, but he would tie people, this is history, he would tie people on poles naked and he would dress himself in animal clothing and he would attack them and their private parts. I mean, he was just an absolute crazy man. But it was because there was no guardrails in his mind. He answered to no one. He saw himself as God. He, he, started, he started demanding worship. 
He came to the power at age of 18, 19, but by the age 30, he committed suicide. So when I read this, I thought, how, how true is this? I don't know, you know, after a while, when a person is handed over to their passions, as we see in Romans chapter 1, three times, God says that he hands them over to their passions. When they refuse to acknowledge him, he hands them over. And this is where homosexuality comes in too, and uh, lesbianism. And so he, here are people who answer to no one and then end up crazy and end up so discontent, he even took his own life. And that's what Shakespeare here refers to. He says, I have a crown, but it's in my heart, not on my head. He says, it's not decked with diamonds and Indian stones, nor to be seen. My crown is called content. A crown that kings seldom wear because they're the ones who have crowns on their heads but they have no crown in their heart. They answer to no one. Everybody answers to them, and they have no contentment. I hope you understand the psychology in it, but let me show you a few other people who, um, who were thinkers and authors and religious leaders who, who spoke out on contentment. Epicurus, a philosopher from the third century, he said of himself, he said, and I quote, to whom little is, to whom little is not enough, Nothing is enough. To whom little is, is not enough, nothing is enough. He said, give me, a, give me barley cake and a glass of water and I'm ready to rival Zeus for happiness. And of course, in their mind, Zeus was the final authority. He says, just give me, give me whatever I need to survive and because even a little is enough for me. I don't know if you guys know the story about Jesus when the woman came to him and asked him for salvation for her, her and her son, and he said, why would you give bread to the dogs? Because she wasn't a part of the people that he came to save. And her response was incredible. She said, even the dogs desire the crumbs that fall from the master's table. I mean, if you've ever seen, um, there, there would be such an uprising today if a spiritual leader had to talk like that about somebody, calling her a dog, and she goes like, even the dogs desire the crumbs. And Jesus said, salvation comes to you. You see, salvation comes to the humble, not to the entitled. So here we see Epicurus, he notices that, and he says, to whom little is not enough, nothing is enough. If you can't be content with what already has been given, you'll never be content with anything that can be given. He says, give me barley and cake and a glass of water and I am ready to rival even Zeus for happiness. And when somebody asks him for the secret of happiness, his answer was this, and I quote, what's the secret of happiness, Epicurean? He says, add not to a man's possessions, but take away from his desires. You see, if this is my desire and you equate my desire with possessions, my desire will grow for more possessions. No matter how much I get, my desire will always skyrocket above it. So he said this. He said, if you want to be happy, you shouldn't, be, you shouldn't receive more possessions in order to be happy. No, you should have less desire in order to, in order to be happy. That's why the Christian can be content no matter what, what station he finds himself in life. Why? Because he has received a brand new heart. When the Bible says God took out the stony heart and put in a heart of flesh, it's, it basically says that he created you anew. You are a brand new creature with a brand new nature who now desires things other than the old nature desired. We now don't desire more stuff. We desire God. Knowing God satisfies us. Having more stuff does, is not what satisfies us. It doesn't say you shouldn't have more stuff. It just says your satisfaction is not in that stuff, but in knowing God. One of the signs, or one of the sayings, excuse me, of the Jewish rabbis was this. Who is rich? 
He that is content with his lot. Who is rich? He that's content with his lot. When I read that, I thought of my friend Tinnis. It's so funny. <laughs> this guy. So I'm Afrikaans, which is a mixture between Dutch, German, and Flemish. And he was North Sutu. And all I, you know, I could just greet in North Sutu at the time. Dumela, one old guy. Kukona, one old guy. It's like, are you greeting Sutu? North Sutu, that's all we could speak to each other. The rest was all like sign language and like, I don't know. You know, when you're kids, you just play and you communicate. And you, like, what language did you talk? Actually, we didn't speak any language. <laughs> we just communicated. And I'm thinking about Tina. It's just the happiest friend I've ever had in my life. Happens to be the friend that's, that's the poorest I've ever had. And when I read this old rabbinic Jewish saying, Who is rich? He that is content with his lot. I immediately thought of him. Now if you had to rate your own contentment between 1 and 10, 1 being hardly content, 10 being very content, I wonder what you would grade yourself at. What would you give yourself? 1, 2, 3, 7, 8, 9. Contentment's a big issue. When you see upheaval in society, you know that there's, there's a group of people very discontent, right? People, when you turn on the TV and you see, you see all the arguments and the, the, act, the people are discontent. When you see buildings burning, people are discontent. When you see people being shot, people are discontent. A lot of murder, a lot of shootings happening in, in Chicago. A lot of people are discontent. Where is your contentment level based on what you have? So the question is, what does the Bible say about contentment? I want to read to you 1 Timothy 6 verse 3 through 11. Now understand, here's the Apostle Paul. And he is talking to his disciple Timothy. Young man took over a very large church with many problems. And usually when you have a lot of problems, you're not content, right? And so here's Paul teaching his disciple. He says in verse 3, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is the only sound words we have, that's why I say the Bible is normalcy to us. He says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with a doctrine conforming to godliness, in other words, if this doctrine doesn't conform to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, conspiracy theorists, and constant friction between men and depraved minds deprived of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a mean of gain. Godliness is a means of gain. That's what they think. Then Paul says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied with contentment. Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied with contentment. It's amazing that the Bible actually says that. That's why I want to answer the question, what makes life profitable? Godliness accompanied with contentment. For we have brought nothing into this world, he says, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Interesting how, you know, last week we spoke about poverty versus relative poverty, and today we look at the, the, what we define a poor person versus what they define a poor person to be are two total different things, right? And so today we run after people with $800 cell phones and say they're poor and we've got to help them. But here he says, if we have food and covering, like for instance at a shelter, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires will plunge men into ruin and destruction. 
This is exactly what we're seeing today. Let me read that again. But um, he says, For those who want to get rich fall into temptations and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and plunge them into destruction. Verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. They pierce themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God. Flee from it and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. These things are more important than wealth. These things are more important than gain. Godliness and contentment. Flee from these things. Just so you know, that's why to me. Um, anyway, I'll just keep moving. Excuse me. Christianity. Christianity does not require that a person choose poverty over wealth. Just so you know. Christianity does not teach you should choose poverty. I know some sects do, but the Bible does not. There is absolutely no special virtue in being poor or in having a constant struggle to make ends meet. There's no virtue in that. But Christianity does ask for two things, does call us to two things. It begs for two things. Christianity begs for the realization that things lack the power to bring this contentment. Things lack the power to produce contentment in your life. They are going to chase after taking stuff from you. And when they get it, they will never be satisfied. They will chase after. They will find, a re find ways to take your property, to take what belongs to you. But it will never satisfy them. That's why it doesn't matter how much is given. They will never be satisfied. They will always want more. This is what Christianity teaches. So it doesn't say that you have to choose poverty over wealth. No, it says you have, to, you have to realize that things lack the power to produce what you are looking for. Secondly, Christianity begs to have a central focus on things that are permanent, things that are eternal, things that are divine, things that are heavenly. That ought to be what we chase after. All right, so let's continue drilling down to find what contentment really is. We saw that it's an internal position. We also see that contentment is finding joy in what God has already given you. Find joy in what you already have. If you read through Ecclesiastes, you'll see over and over again. Ecclesiastes is a fantastic book. It's written like a prosecutor prosecuting life and a defender defending life. It's almost like you are the judge hearing out Solomon as he plays both roles, the prosecutor and the defender. And he says, life is worthless. Life is empty. Life is a chasing off the wind and then you die. Life, life is meaningless. And then stands up the, the, the defender and he says, and this is what I have concluded, that there's nothing better for man to do than to fear God. And enjoy the life that he has. And then he says this. He says, and even this is a gift from God. In other words, <laughs> you can have all you've ever wanted. You cannot enjoy it unless God gifts you with the ability to enjoy what you've got. But he says it over and over. He prosecutes life. And then at the end, he says, and this is my conclusion. There's nothing better for man to do than to drink and eat and enjoy the life God has given him. For this too is a gift from God. Fearing God makes the life you have valuable, meaningful. But it doesn't matter how much you have without the fear of God. This life is a chasing off to wind. That's his point. So contentment is finding joy in what God has already given you. What God has given you. 
the family God has given you, the life God has given you, the giftings God has given you, the abilities God has given you, the opportunities God has given you. This, you know, this society we live in, this is something we need to thank God for because this is a huge uh, um, field to evangelize in. <laughs> you know, this whole entire field needs to be evangelized. Contentment is a Christian grace that grows over time. It doesn't come quickly or easily or naturally. Paul says it in Philippians 4 verse 12. He says, I know the experience of being in need and of having more than enough. I have learned the secret to being content. I have learned the secret to being content. I want to show you something. Please, please follow me in this. He says, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being content. So we can see here that contentment is a learned behavior. It doesn't come natural. Nobody is born content. Have you ever noticed? Nobody's born content. But it's a learned behavior. And here Paul tells us how he learned it. In any and every circumstance, I have learned to be content. Whether full or whether hungry or whether having plenty or being poor. Okay? Here's what I want to show you. That contentment cannot be taught to somebody who's never been hungry. Contentment cannot be taught to somebody who's never been poor. Contentment is taught when, well, I guess all I have is, is my wife. I love you, wife. You're all I got left. You know, it's like when you've lost everything, you learn contentment for what you do have. But here is the problem that we have today. People have always had just prosperity and now they're discontent. Can you see what I'm saying? It's like, it's the strangest thing. I thank God, and this has been a blessing I see for my own life. I have seen the other side of this world where there is absolutely no opportunity no matter how gifted you are. Where people will search for a way below poverty job for two years to find one and then they're thankful when they get it. And then on the other side of the globe, you'll find people that you can drive down the street and you say, for hire, for hire, for hire, for hire. And nothing's good enough for them. They'll just stay home rather. It, it, because they, and, then they, and then they hate where they live. It's the strangest thing to me. It, it, it blows my mind how contentment is taught by having something and then having nothing. By being full and being hungry and understanding it. This is how Paul explains it. He says, Philippians 4.12, I know the experience of being in need and of having more than enough. In need and having more than enough. I have learned this secret of being content in any and every circumstance. You have to have both in order to learn contentment. But a society that's only had a lot does not know how to be content. And when they're discontent, they act the way you see them acting. So how did Paul learn it? By experiencing both. He has to experience loss. Because experiencing loss produces that fruit of contentment. Jeremiah borrows, he's a, he's a Puritan, one of the first generations to land on the shores of America, he describes contentment as a rare jewel. A rare jewel. How can you find joy in what God gives you, especially when it's less than what you had before? This is a question was asked. Borrows was asked, how can you find joy in what God gives you when God gives you less than what you had before He gave it to you? <laughs> it's, like, it's like, thanks God, thanks, thanks for nothing. You know, how can you find joy in loss? How can you find contentment in loss? Borrows responds with great wisdom, and I quote, he says, a Christian comes to contentment not so much by way of addition as by way of subtraction. Contentment does not come by adding to what you have, but by subtracting from what you desire. Okay, so get that statement. Contentment doesn't come by adding adding more to what you already have. 
No contentment comes by distracting your desire from those things. That's why covetousness is so absolutely devastating and destructive. I want to keep reading. Burroughs said, The world says that you will find contentment when your possessions rise to meet the level of your desires. The Christian has another way to contentment. That is, he can bring his desires down to his possessions. And the reason the Christian can bring his desires down to his possessions is because he is first and foremost eternally minded. Those possessions aren't as valuable to him as the person who is not eternally minded. It's like what happens when, when, somebody, when somebody dings your car, do you fall apart? You know, like what happens when you lose money, do you fall apart? Is this what, you, is this what your whole entire life has been vested into? So the reason the Christian can bring his desire down to his possession is because he doesn't value possessions like those in the world do. He values things that are eternal. And the second reason is because he does, his desire is for God and not for the stuff that God can give him. So the Christian, has, the Christian has been made free. Do you see that? When God gave you a brand new heart, family, he, he freed you from being so highly vested into the things of the world. And you cannot be content whether those, those things are in your, in your pocket or not, whether those things are in your possession or not. You are free from those things. That's why you can be content because you have your great reward, which is God himself. The Christian is free. He was made free when he was made a new creature. Hebrews 13, 5 says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. If you never content with what you currently have, it's because you have an unhealthy connection to money. Let me read that to you again, and then I'll, I want to read to you the last part of that verse is, is, is a portion of Scripture that we oftentimes, that we, we have on coffee mug Christianity. It's always on your coffee mug. Let me read it to you. It says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself said, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. The reason people are so highly vested into this world and into this stuff is because they don't believe that God will always be with them. The Christian whose value is heavenly and not earthly is content in this world. When I become discontent with what's around me, then I need to understand that my values are no longer eternal. Let's go to the second, the second question. So we talked about the first one is what makes life profitable? What makes life bearable? What makes life, you know, valuable? Contentment with what you have. The second is, well, let me just say that. Godliness with contentment makes life profitable. Godliness with contentment makes life profitable, the Bible says. Secondly, what makes life meaningful? What makes life meaningful? If ever, you know, we need to answer this question. It's now. Why? Because of suicide rates. It's totally out of hand. Suicide's never been, never, it's never been such a big problem. I can't tell you how many people I know that their arms are completely cut up. You know those cutters? They cut themselves so they can feel. The lack of meaning drives you to certain insane behaviors. Like I explained to you, Nero. When, when there's nobody to answer to, there's no meaning. When nobody holds you accountable, if there's no standard for you, if you are the standard to yourself, uh, meaning disappears. It dissipates. It evaporates. And when meaning disappears and evaporates, well then, insanity fills its place. So what is the, 
What makes life, the life you and I family have, what makes our lives meaningful? Responsibility. That's what makes life meaningful. Yesterday, I was able to um, interview um, one of Tony Spasato's disciples, Han. Just kidding, Tony. So I, I said to Han, Han, like, um, why, why do you like to serve? He says, because I've learned that I really like to be responsible. Because when I'm responsible, it does something for me. When I get to the end of the day, a day that I was responsible in, I feel, you know, it changes the way I feel. When I get to the end of a day where I just kind of did nothing, just maybe just hung around and just played computer games, whatever, I, I really feel empty. I feel void. And it struck me that if God called you and I to be faithful, if you asked, if you really used deductive reasoning and you went all the way to the bottom of that, that, that call, like when God says, be faithful. If you use deductive reasoning, you get to the bottom of faithfulness, it's actually responsibility over what you have right now. You cannot be faithful and irresponsible at the same time, right? In order to be faithful, I have to also be responsible. It is the responsible person that's responsible in his marriage with his children, with, 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 with his relationship with God, the person who's responsible over the opportunity God puts in front of him, he's the one who's a good steward. He's the one who is faithful. So what makes life meaningful is responsibility. In a postmodern world, it is the norm to blame or to shift blame, is it? This is norm. If the child does well at school, man, my child's a genius. If the child fails, you know, that teacher doesn't know what she's doing. When somebody chooses a criminal life today, guess who's to, bl to be blamed? Society. They've got to shift the blame. If a person doesn't want to work and he's, and he's poor, guess what? Guess who's to be blamed? Society. If a person does, does something crazy, it's always because of their childhood issues. It's not theirs. It's their childhood issues caused by somebody else. Somebody else did that to that person and now they're cutting themselves. Somebody else did something to that person and now he's trying to commit suicide. It's always somebody else. At least this is in our, in our postmodern society. But the Bible gives us a different perspective, though. The Bible, on the other hand, teaches the concept of personal responsibility, personal responsibility, individual responsibility, to the point where you cannot hold somebody guilty for somebody else's sins. You cannot hold even a, a son guilty for his father's sins. You can't do it. I'll show it to you. Ezekiel 18.20 says exactly that. Ezekiel 18.20, hear me, it says, The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquities. Nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself. And the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. That's in the NASB. Let me read it to you out of the NLT <coughs> just to drive the point home for clarity's sake. Ezekiel 18.20 says, The person who sins is the one who will die. That person. The child will not be punished for the parents' sins. Doesn't matter how many generations back. It doesn't matter. That child will not be punished for the sins of the parents. And the parent will, be, will not be punished for the child's sins. Righteous people will be rewarded for their own righteousness, for their own righteous behaviors. And wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. I mean, the Bible's very clear. Personal and individual accountability, you are guilty for what you chose to do, no matter what somebody else did to you. Again, you will never stand before Jesus and say, Jesus, you know what? It was really that woman you gave me. That's who it was. You know, that was her fault. You cannot stand before God one day and say, hey, it was a snake that you put in the garden. Don't play me, hey. <laughs> the snake told me to do it. 
You see, this is, this is a, a, um, a lie that's infiltrated throughout our education system, our colleges and universities, where everybody's, everybody's guilt is no longer individual. It has now become corporate. Society has moved away from that individual responsibility and has moved towards social guilt, right? Societal guilt. The Bible says in Joshua 7, 14 and 18, Achan was held responsible for his sin at Jericho. Nobody else was held responsible for Jonah was held responsible for his choice to run from the Lord. Isaiah 3, verse 10 says, Say to the righteous that it will go well with them, for they will eat the fruit of their actions. Verse 11, But woe to the wicked. It will go badly for him, for what he deserves will be done to him. You see, the person, and here's my point, the person with zero responsibility in life also has zero meaning in life. It is actually the responsibility you take upon yourself that gives you meaning to this life. It is when you say, hey, I'll take that on. I'll take that on because I know that it will bless many people. Well, the moment you take that on, it gives so much meaning to your life. If I had no wife to care for, if I had no children to care for, if I had no parents to care for, if I had no ex extended family to care for, if I had no church to care for, if I had no bills, and I had just nothing, everything was just given me, guess what? I'd have no meaning in this life. But suddenly, the responsibility that is... Before, that has fallen on me, whether it be individual relationships or a church family, <laughs> like, and on top of that truth, the truth of the Word of God, the responsibility to, uh, I love God so much, I can't but uphold His truth. That responsibility that befalls upon a person, that really causes a person to grow and when a person re receives or takes that responsibility upon themselves is when meaning comes to them. Two things about responsibility. I've realized this because I have two kids, a four-year-old and an 11-year-old. And maturity comes because responsibility is being delegated. And they're able to, <laughs> they're able to be responsible with what was given them. That's why it's an insane thing to think that kids who come out of college are not going to fix the world. It's an insane concept. They haven't yet succeeded in marriage. They haven't yet built a life with children. They haven't, they haven't succeeded at almost anything except written a theoretical exam, and now we tell them, go and change the world. No, make your bed. Start there. Get married. Stay married. See if you can get that right. And when you succeed in that, have children in that order. See if that's possible for you. And then when you're able to make that little, little life of yours work, now let's give you the next. Okay, now let's have you like get involved in the church and help people who, who need to get to where you're at. Okay, you're over there, you grow, and now you help somebody get there. But what we do is, I've been to many, many like, what do you call it when kids graduate from school? Graduation. Graduations. There you go. I just said it. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's like, it's your turn. Now go and change the world. Here's, here's Karl Marx. Read it and go and change the world. You can't make your bed. You can't pay your bills, but you want to fix the world. You can't, you can't make that little slither of a life work. We might be able to, but first prove, us, prove, us, prove to us that you can. All right? So, Responsibility causes you to mature, and responsibility gives you meaning to this life. Individual, personal responsibility before God. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6 says, Now we command you, brothers, in, this, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, is God speaking, we command you, it wasn't like, hey, by the way, here's a suggestion. That's not what was said here. He says, now, we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
Keep away from every who? Brother who leads an unruly life. Wow. We command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you keep away from every brother, not unsafe person, brother who leads an unruly life. And not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourself know how you ought to follow our example. Because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Verse 8. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to, uh, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear this, for we hear this, that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such person we command and exhort in Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. <laughs> eat their own bread, all right. Responsibility, responsibility. Folks, let me just tell you what the devil's doing. The devil is telling people I mean, have you ever heard of, of, of such a thing as universal income? It's a crazy thing. What they're going to do is they're going to take away all responsibility. They take away all responsibility. And they, by the way, they're taking away accountability too. And then they go, now go and enjoy your life. I listened to this guy on a TED talk, okay? He's saying like, well, universal income is really, really important. You know why? Because if that person doesn't have to go to work, but he gets a monthly income from the government, then he can spend more time with his children. He can spend more time with his family. Folks, just so you know, that's actually not how life is designed by God. It is when you take up the responsibility by the sweat of your brow that you can make life work and you can work towards redeeming, not that you are Jesus, but towards redeeming uh, uh, this fallen nature and fallen world. Let me say this because you've got a new nature in Christ. But this fallen world that is already broken. And that brings meaning. That you can actually be of benefit to those. Because, look, the poor does not support the poor. No, you have to actually have means in order to support somebody else. And to take responsibility for that. And within that responsibility comes meaning to your life. This is how God designed it. I want to close off real shortly with a third one. So the first is, what makes life profitable? Godliness with contentment. 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 What makes life meaningful? responsibility with what you have. Let's grow up because in that responsibility you will find so much meaning come to your life. That's the only possible way to be faithful. And then thirdly, what makes life necessary? What makes life necessary? Relationships make life necessary. Relationships. Philippians 1 verse 21, the Apostle Paul is speaking and he says, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. Can you believe this guy had like this thought? <laughs> I'm calling him a guy. I don't mean to, to belittle him. This is the Apostle Paul. I mean, he was literally having this conversation about, you know what, I don't know if I should go and stay. I don't know. And he wasn't an old man at the time. I mean, 
He was what we would think of mid-age, like basically just past that. But here he was going like, ah, you know what, for me to live is Christ. Yeah, that's why I like to be here on earth. But to die is gain. So the worst possible thing that can happen to me, death, is also the greatest possible thing that can happen to me because it's a gain. It's a gain. All right? He says, but if I'm to live on in the flesh, if I'm going to stay in this world, okay, this will mean fruitful labor for me. In other words, there'll be more fruit in my life if I just stayed because that's why God places on this earth so He can be glorified. How? By us being fruitful. Jesus said, in this my Father is glorified, that ye bear much fruit, that ye be responsible, and ye be uh, 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 fruitful. Okay, so here He says, but if I'm to live on in this flesh, this will mean fruitfulness, fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which one to choose. Man, it's real tough. <laughs> Verse 23, he says, but I'm hard-pressed from both directions. I want to stay, I want to go. I want to stay, I want to go. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ for that is very much better. The worst possible thing that can happen to me, death, is also the best thing that could possibly happen to me. Verse 24, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary who? For you. What makes life necessary? Relationships. Relationships makes life necessary. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you, all for your progress and joy in the faith. Your life is necessary. Why? Because of you. Like, who can benefit in the faith because of you? That's your, your relationships makes the, the life you have of utmost importance. Because you can become responsible in a big way for that person's well-being, even their faith. Pray for them. Minister to them. Give them the word. And when you become responsible with that, meaning is added to your life. And at that point, folks, really, what you have and what you don't have doesn't matter because you got so much meaning to your life. You are so necessary. And I really believe that these are the three anchors that people let go of and they drift into anger, resentment. They drift into covetousness. They drift into greed. They drift into envy and they drift into all of those evils that defile them. And now all they want to do is just, you know, just pull down the structure. Let's destroy everything around us. You know, if I can't have it, I'll burn it down. If I can't have, if I can't, if you don't give me what I want, I will destroy everything around me. But that's envy. That's how envy works. And the Bible says envy rots the bones. Envy actually makes you physically sick. So may we reach deep down into that part of life where the anchors are that God has given us. And let's... Let's grow in contentment. Let's learn contentment with, based on what we don't have. If you have children, teach them how to be content. How? Not by saying, be content with what you have. No, show them. Like, I want you to, I want you to learn to be content by, with what you don't have. Let's learn contentment. Let's reach in there and grab a hold of contentment and say, God, I thank you for what I have, and I praise you even in the midst of what I don't have. I'm not into this have and have nots thing because I'm not into the fairness-minded idea. I'm, I have a justice-minded idea. I stand before you, and I, and I thank you for what you already have given me. Let's reach into the depth of God's understanding and grab onto that anchor. Let's reach into the depth and grab onto that understanding of faithfulness where life, this is where meaning, meaning comes to life. God, I want to be a faithful, responsible person. I want to be somebody you can rely on. I want to be somebody everybody can rely on. And as a pastor, I want people to say, hey, uh, you know what? I can rely on Jacques when it comes to truth. Maybe not when it comes to being on time, but when it comes to truth, I can rely on Jacques. 
I'm working on that one, by the way. And, <laughs> you know, because, you know why? Because I hope you've seen that if I've been wrong in seeing something, I'm like, oh, I guess I missed it. All right, I'll change it. I want to be reliable. Again, you can rely upon the person who will give you the truth at his own expense. That person you can trust. Show me, God, what I'm not, what I'm not getting, and I will change. Because that's a sign of a God-fearing person. Actually, I had a message for today, how to recognize a God-fearing person. It's really this. It's the person that will not argue with the Scripture, no matter how much they have to give up. That's the God-fearing person. God, you're right, I'm wrong. Okay, let's keep going. <laughs> so let's reach deep into God's knowledge and grab onto responsibility over what's been given to us already so we can be faithful stewards over what already belongs to God. Let's reach deep into God's understanding of what makes this life that we have necessary, and that is relationships in our lives, no matter how few they are, relationships. Because Paul chose to stay for the sake of the relationships he had. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I thank you, Father God, that you, that you teach us, Lord, what it means to be content, what it means to become responsible as faithful stewards over what already belongs to you. These giftings you've given us, this time you've given us, these opportunities you've given us, this truth you've handed us. Let us be faithful stewards. And God, I pray that you teach us what it means to be grateful and thankful for this life that is so important, so necessary because of the relationships that you have already placed in our lives. While every head's bowed and every eye's closed, if you're saying, Jacques, I've become increasingly urgent to be right with God. I have a concern that I need to come to God and be right with God. Let me just tell you, friend, if, if that's you, that desire didn't come from you. No, your, your basic desire is to hate God as a fallen person. But if you start desiring God instead of hating God, if you want to make peace with God instead of war with God because we were naturally His enemies as fallen men. If you want peace with Him instead of war, it is because God is doing something in your life. It takes God to want God. As a matter of fact, He says, you didn't choose me, I chose you. He works in us both to will and to do His good pleasure. He's the one that authored and finishes this faith in us. And if you desire God to make peace with Him instead of war with Him, to be at peace with Him, if that's you, start thanking God for even doing that in you. The Bible says, search, seek. Keep on seeking and you will find. Knock, keep on knocking. The door will be opened to you. Ask, keep on asking. God, I want to be right with you. I know I can only be right with you in Christ Jesus. There's no other mediator. There's no Mary. There's no other saint. There's nobody else but Jesus Christ. Why? Because He's the only one that lived a sinless life. He's the only one who gave His life as a substitute. He was the one who received God's wrath on your behalf. And folks, God's wrath against your sin is paid in one of two places, in Christ or in hell forever. And God doesn't throw the sin in hell. He throws a sinner in hell. Because people like to say God loves the sinner but hates the sin. Only then to see that God doesn't throw the sin in hell. He throws the sinner in hell who is unrepentant and who is outside of Christ outside of the ark. Oh God, help us. If you have an increasing urgency 
to be right with God. It is God's hand working in your life right now. Give yourself to Him unconditionally. How do you do that? You just say, Jesus, you are my Lord starting today. I declare with my mouth, you are my boss. You are my leader. And I am your follower. Where do I follow Christ to? I follow Him to the Father. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So receive Jesus' lordship in your life. That is how you make right with God. Believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. That is how you make right with God. But folks, it's a searching and it's a continual searching. It's a knocking. It's a continual knocking. Don't chase after truth. Chase after God. Because if you really want God, you will naturally uphold His truth.